Morning, church. I'm always, um, <clears throat> I'm always surprised when we take some time just to stop the activity of doing something, whether it be singing or listening and, and, and exploring scripture or doing whatever thousands of things we do when, when everything just stops and we are, shall we say, perhaps forced or invited either way, whichever one you prefer into a time where we just need to kind of sit and just let someone, sometimes even no voice, just speak over us. Hey, God is for you. Whatever you need from him, why don't you just ask? What surprises me is how rare those moments are in our life. And it saddens me. It does. It saddens me that we have relationship with a God that walked around on this planet and regularly said, what would you like from me? What can I do for you? What do you need from me? Even when it was obvious, just to let that human being say, can you, can you help me see? Can you help me walk? Can you, can you make my hunger go away? Can you feed me? There's 5,000 of us. We're pretty hungry. <laughs> Doesn't matter. And Jesus was like, I'd love to. I'd love to. So may I just encourage you not to miss the moment we just experienced together. And may I also encourage you to find more of them during your week to come to places where you can just sit and say, hey, can Hey, can I ask you some things, God, that, that, I, that I need? And, and can you remind me that you are here and you are with me? So, sorry, it just, it was profound for me again, just to be reminded of how beautiful an invitation that is and how rarely we take it. So I pray that that was a sweet time for your soul. I um, just flew in from Brazil last night. Um, I got to spend this last week there. Um, so good to be back, so good to be here, so good to be home. Uh, but it was also really, really good to be there. I had the uh, incredible privilege of spending the week with um, a group of missionaries, about 1,500 of them, uh, that uh, come together every three years in Brazil. They are missionaries sent from Brazil all over the world, both in Brazil and around the world, and specifically they are missionaries that work among unreached people groups, which means that many of the missionaries that were at this conference, many of the couples, many of the families, many of the individuals, uh, they were wearing red tags around their necks with their little name tag, which said, don't take any pictures of me because if it ends up online and people know I'm a Christian, back where I do work among the people I work in, they will kill me. <laughs> I mean, he's like, what? <laughs> the places these missionaries spend their time in jungles, uh, in the Middle East, in Asia, in Latin America, in hard, hard ground, hard places, because people need Jesus. It was just really neat, really powerful, really uh, overwhelming to just be with them for a couple of days and have conversations and get to speak some life into them on abiding and resting in Jesus. And it did for sure just cause me again to just put into perspective the calling that is on my life, uh, how awkward it feels to go into the workplace and share the gospel, how awkward it feels to go to a neighbor and share the gospel, how awkward it feels to um, bump into people in my social networks and share the gospel. Uh, and then looking at these folks and go, uh, awkward uh, is, doesn't even begin to tell the story for them, right? Dangerous, deadly, uh, uh, painful, uh, just, just, it would just put into perspective. But, but I want to say this, it didn't put it into the perspective that I felt like, oh man, like they do big giant work and then, and then I, I we do little teeny tiny work. 
It was actually more than that. It was this beautiful reminder from God that he has us, his people, the church, the people of God on mission where? Everywhere, in jungles, in deserts, in dangerous places, in oases, in neighborhoods, in safe places. He has us all on mission and where we are on mission isn't the point The point is that we're on mission. The point is that we are with him and he with us and that we are given the privilege in our relationships, in our resources, in our circumstances, in our geography, in our particular life to proclaim and demonstrate the gospel. And and we are in a book that Paul is writing to Timothy in its original form so that Timothy can go to the church in Ephesus and say to the church in Ephesus, as a people uh, rescued by God, redeemed by God, recipients of the gospel, and now called by God because we are no longer citizens of any place or people or country first. We are citizens of a kingdom of life and light and freedom. And we are ambassadors of our King Jesus on this planet You, church, go, and as you go into the world in which you live, uh, may you make Jesus uh, much, may you make much of him, and may you glorify him, and may you expand his kingdom by proclaiming it and demonstrating it. And, and, And Paul is writing to Timothy to say, the church that I have asked you to go and teach They need some course correcting. They need some correcting because they have lost their way and they have lost their way because the leaders, the teachers in that church, they are people that are teaching falsely because they are teaching out of wrong motives, selfish motives. And in that teaching, the teaching is having impact on the church and the church has lost its way. And you need to course correct them. And, and what Paul said to Timothy as he opened this letter up in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, early in the book, what does he say? He says, the aim of this charge, of this challenge, of this correcting, of this bringing hard news to the church, convicting news to the church, to the leaders, the aim of all this is... Love, love, because we're going to assume that the other people that know and love Jesus, that they actually want to live a life. They actually want to teach rightly in a way that would glorify Jesus and expand his kingdom. And if they are not, if they have lost their way, we would and should assume that it would be an act of love to course correct them because to find out at the end of a journey that you were living in a way that was not expanding the kingdom and glorifying Jesus or teaching falsely and no one told you what a tragedy that would be. So he's like, the the aim of this charge isn't rightness. The aim of this charge isn't correction. The aim of this charge isn't, isn't challenge. The aim of this charge is love. It's love. And, and then uh, in the section of the letter that we're in right now, as we've been traveling through it, Paul now adds a dynamic. We just covered it in the last few weeks. He spends some time talking about the leadership in the church after in the early parts of the letter, he sort of said, here's all the stuff going on, some false teaching that's leading to some false behaviors uh, because people are behaving badly because of these false teachings. Uh, and, And then he gets to leadership and he says, look, it starts with leadership. Uh, when we have leadership in the church uh, that is bent on Jesus, that is uh, caring about the people that Jesus uh, set them to care for, when their motives uh, are about his kingdom and about his word, not about themselves, those are the kinds of leaders you want. 
And so whoever is leading in the church, make sure they are qualified insofar as they are people whose hearts are bent on the glory of Jesus and whose hearts are bent on caring for the people of Jesus for his sake and not their own. And by the way, if you wonder sometimes why when I'm on the stage here, I'm always pointing back there when I say Jesus, like Jesus. And you're like, does he like look up to the heavens like Jesus? It's actually a lot simpler than that. It's just sort of a mental thing. Everybody turn around for a second. Look on that back wall over there. See what's on that back wall over there? This is a big giant Jesus written with lights in it. And, and it's, it's wonderful because it just gives me a visual space to kind of say, who, who are we glorifying? Jesus. But it also means that whomever is standing on the stage, uh, whether leading in worship or leading in teaching or doing some dramatic thing or whatever it is on the stage, uh, that we are in a space where you're going to have to be real daring not to remember that what this is about is Jesus because we put big letters back there saying, who's this for? Jesus. And if you forget that, man, if it's about these folks right here, you in trouble. So I just want you to know I don't care about you. <laughs> it's not totally true. But I certainly want to make sure that we are always constantly doing everything we do for the glory of Jesus, even when it is caring for each other. We love each other because we love Jesus and because Jesus said for us to love each other. You with me? So all that to say, uh, Paul has said the leaders of the church, whether they have the title of overseer or whether they have the title of servant, whether their leading is in serving or overseeing, that's not the relevancy. The relevancy is that wherever they are leading, they should be leading in a manner worthy of the gospel. And then uh, just the last part we covered, what did he say? He said, man, can we just admit together that the way of the kingdom of God is weird? It's weird because its philosophies, its realities, its truth are often opposed to the truths of our cultural context. That's why I said to the conference I was at, it's so good to be in a room with this many stupid people. And they were like, yeah. And I was like, no, but think about it, right? I mean, from, a, from a, a, the perspective of any culture, if you are going to take your competencies and your resources and your energy and time, and you are going to divert it to go to a terribly dangerous place to tell people a message they don't want to hear and that they will probably kill you if you tell them, and you do it at the cost of having resources available to you, and you're living in constant struggle from a resource challenge because you're in a dangerous place, and friends of yours have died there doing the same thing, the world would say that's stupid. And I love when I'm with people that they're stupid is what the world would think rightly is stupid. But when you know the kingdom of God, it is anything but stupid. And so in the same way, Paul just said, man, the way of the kingdom is a mystery, isn't it? It so often kind of calls us into something that just goes, oh, and what a joy it is to be in that mystery and see how that plays out. And now what Paul's going to do after he's dealt with what leadership should look like, and he's dealt with what's going on in that church in sort of general terms, he's now going to get back to the problem of this church, and he's going to deal with it in a way that he elevates the urgency of how seriously we as a people of God need to take truth. When the truth of God is compromised, the extent of damage that that will do in the long run is massive. And he elevates this urgency and says, you better pay attention to the truths of God and take them deadly seriously. Because if you are believing truths that are not of God, that are opposed to God, the deadly nature of that is extraordinary. That's what he's about to do. He's about to call us into the urgency of truth. And specifically, whose truth? God's truth. So turn with me to the book of uh, 1 Timothy, and we are going to be in chapter 4, verse 1. 1 Timothy, chapter 4, verse 1. And here's, he's just coming out of chapter 3. Uh, what has he just done? He has just put the gospel on the table through a hymn or a poem, right? And this is the gospel he put on the table. He, Jesus, was manifest in the flesh, 
vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. And you're just like, yes, there is the gospel. There is the good news. There is our salvation. There is our glory for it is his glory. And he will glorify us with him as he raises us from the dead because of what he's done. Like you're just like, yes, that's it. And now look what Paul does. Now, the spirit expressly says that in the later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. Okay, wow. I mean, it's like a shocking, like Paul's just like, okay, glory to Jesus. Here's the gospel. The kingdom of God is sort of upside down and inside out. Doesn't always make sense to the world. Often doesn't. We need leaders that love Jesus and care about him and his glory in the people. And then he goes like this, look, the spirit of God expressly said, that as time goes on, there will be those that will begin to teach what was the gospel and they will begin to fade away from that gospel, fade away from that truth and begin to teach uh, in a space that is influenced by other teachers, not God, not his word, but other teachers. And the spirit of God expressly said this. Now, we, we don't know exactly what Paul means as far as when exactly the Spirit of God expressly said this. But we do know that the Spirit of God spoke of this, this journey in uh, the Gospels and John, he spoke of it. And we do know that in the letters that are being written, including 1 Timothy, but others that Paul wrote, it is certainly constantly put on the table as time goes on, People, humans, leaders, teachers who were once teaching the gospel or who were never teaching the gospel will teach falsely, right? And who wrote the New Testament? God did. The Holy Spirit wrote the New Testament through people. He inspired them and then he breathed into the scripture's life. The scripture says the scriptures are God breathed. Notice, just side note, when God breathes on something, FYI, dust becomes life. Dust becomes life. And when God breathes on words on a page, words become life. So this thing we have that was perhaps once just words on a page as they were being penned, as the spirit inspires and the spirit breathes words written by people on a page become more than words. They become life. And, and what he's saying is that spirit has expressly said on multiple occasions that humans who are teaching the gospel and humans that never were will often fade into a place where they are not teaching the truths of God. And when that happens, when they're doing that, here's what's happening. Paul writes, it is not just that human thought is occurring and that a human being is teaching falsely. They are teaching from a spirit that is teaching them. We are all always teaching from a spirit that is teaching us. The question is, which spirit? Which spirit? There is a spiritual realm that is active in our everyday life and it is influencing you and I constantly. And Paul just reminds us of this. False teaching is not just a human thing and therefore has human consequences. It is from a spiritual place and therefore has eternal and spiritual consequences. How important is it that we are learning from and teaching from the right spirit? Very important. So he says, listen, when there is false teaching, 
teaching that does not align with God's word, with God's spirit, then it is being taught by other spirits. Now the word here, you deceitful spirits or demonic or demons, when we hear the word demon, because of our cultural context, we automatically have that experience inside. He means something evil. Now, are demons evil? You're like, is it a trick question? I don't know. Look, they are. Okay, so it's not a trick. They are evil. But in our cultural context, we have in our language made that separation. You use the word demon, you mean evil spirit, right? The word means evil spirit. But in Paul's time, the word demon did not in of itself simply mean evil spirit. You had to put a word in front of it to say, is this a good demon or a bad demon. The word demon was more understood in Paul's time from a pagan standpoint as a oracle or spirit that could be bad or could be good. Now, are any of the demons good? No, no, so don't hear me wrongly. You're like, Renault's saying they're good demons. I'm tweeting this. No, Renault's saying that in Jesus's time and Paul's time, by using the word demon, you use the word as covering spirits that in pagan times would have thought of as some good, some bad. And so what Paul is doing here, it's beautiful, is he's not saying when there is teaching that is clearly dark, clearly evil, clearly not right. Uh, it's clearly from a dark place. Those people, they went to, uh, found some evil spirits and they're like, teach me something. You know the movies, all the movies we always watch when some person who wants power, they go seek power from the dark side. And we're like, no, don't do it. And then they go in and then they become dark. That's, that's how we think of when Paul says this. Oh, these people that are false teachers. I mean, they're, they're teaching from demonic places, evil places. In, in Paul's time, though they were teaching from demonic places as they would today, if it does not align with scripture, Paul is making something far more beautiful here. He's saying, anytime there is teaching, Anytime there is truth, anytime we believe something that stands opposed to the truth of God's word by his spirit, it is from a different spirit, good or bad, it's bad. Because there is no good spirit, but for one, and that is our king and our God. And so he's saying, you better discern because these people that are teaching falsely, they are teaching from deceptive spirits and demonic spirits, even when it sounds maybe not as dark and demonic. And he's saying, listen, when we do that, understand that false teaching, false truth, false belief always comes from the same place. Now, remember, we are not saying that all truth that is not in the Bible isn't true. We have lots of truths that are not in the Bible. We have uh, fields of truth, science and philosophy and realities that have wonderful things to discover, truths to know, books we can read. We can learn from lots of places. What we are saying is that anything you hear, anything you read, anything you see, anything you understand outside of scripture, if it opposes what is inside of scripture, it is demonic. It's demonic. You're like, oh, demonic, demonic. That's what he's saying. It is from spiritual realms and it is deceitful and demonic. So we have to measure all of what we hear and see through the filter of God's word. Now, what's fascinating to me, because we'll often talk about God's word, but we talk about the Holy Spirit teaching us. And is the Holy Spirit with us? Yes. Is he in us? Yes. Is he teaching us? Yes. Is he our teacher? Yes. But the word of God, that is our teacher. Yes. So how do these come together? Remember, and, and look at what Paul is doing here. It's so beautiful. He, he, is, he is laying on the table the assumption that Timothy would know, that even the church in Ephesus would know, that we would know, that we do have a teacher. We do have a rabbi and he is spirit. 
The Holy Spirit is our teacher and our rabbi, given to us by our teacher and our rabbi. And when you are listening, buying into believing truths that oppose his truths, it is another spirit. Now look what, look, look, look what uh, uh, Jesus said. In, in John 15, I don't know if you guys remember, Jesus is with his disciples at the Last Supper and he's talking with them about his departure. And right before he talks about his departure, in fact, no, in the middle of talking about his departure, because remember in John 13, he says, I'm going. And then Peter's like, you're not going anywhere. I'm not going. He's like, yeah, you can't go where I'm going. Not yet anyways. And then Peter's like, I'm coming. And then he's like, you're going to deny me. And then John, John 13, uh, we unpack the realities of, of what's unfolding with his death. And now we get to, I mean, John 14 and we get to John 15, right? And what does Jesus say? Uh, abide in me, for I am the true vine. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, come stay close to me. Come, come be with me. Come, come learn from me. It's rabbinical talk. Hey, humans. Hey, disciples. Here's your best bet as you head into life, okay? Come stand right by my side. Stay real close. Grab my hand. Think of a little three-year-old when you're the parent and you're walking into a place that has some danger. You with me? Like a big mall or you're crossing a street. What does a parent do to their child when they walk into a dangerous place? Hey, everybody come here. See, I have eight kids. So for me, it's like, everybody freeze. Everybody here, hold hand, hold hand, hold hand, adult on the end, hold hand, hold hand, adult on the end. And you're like, okay. And then with me, because there's so many of them when they were little, they're not little anymore. Uh, you know, you had to do the thing of, if you let go, I'll kill you. <laughs> because if you don't let go, you live. But if you let go, there is danger and you might die. And then you walk around and Jesus in John 15 is like, the world is what? Dangerous. You, you can go read it in John 15. He, the whole section of John 15, like the world is dangerous. They hate me. They will hate you. So what is your best bet? Stay close to me, right? My truth, my way, my life, stay here. And then you know what he tells them at the end of John 15? Hey, I'm leaving. <laughs> no kidding. I'm leaving. I'm, I'm like, like very soon. I die tomorrow, and then in like 40 days, I'm out. So how confusing is that? Stay close, bye-bye. And then he does this. Listen to this. John, John, John. Go to John, John 16, there we are. Listen to this. This is incredible. John 16, he says to them in verse four, kind of the back end of verse four, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me and none of you ask, where are you going? Uh, forget that. Here's the point. But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Makes sense, doesn't it? Stay close to me. I'm leaving. What? And then he says this. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him. And then he says, when he comes, he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, judgment. He will redeem the world. You'll go with him. He'll do the work. You stay close. So first of all, he says, the, the, the calling I'm going to put on your lives as a people who proclaim and demonstrate the gospel, you can't do it. And even when you do it, it has no power. So I'm going to send you a helper who has all the power and can do it. And you just grab his hand and say, how can I help? And then look at this. Look at what he says here. Verse 12. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me for he will make, he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Who is our teacher? The Holy Spirit. The spirit of God is our rabbi for our rabbi Jesus gave us his spirit so that we might continue to know truth. 
And what did that spirit do from the time he came and filled the apostles and then filled the people of God? He took those apostles and he taught them things and they wrote them down. And we call that most of the New Testament. Every letter, everything, any one of those people sent, including 1 Timothy, was taught to them and now to us through our rabbi, the Holy Spirit. When you are reading the word of God, learning the word of God, studying the word of God, you are reading, learning and studying something that has been breathed on by God and it is alive, not dead words on a page, not lessons from the past, living, breathing truth that comes to meet you and I in our context. The truth doesn't change, but everything in the human story changes and the truth stays alive because he brings that truth to us. And when we learn anything and believe it, and it opposes what our rabbi, the Holy Spirit has written down and shows us by his power, it is demonic. It is from a spirit or spirits that are not the Holy Spirit. That's how serious this is. And then when things are taught that are not the Holy Spirit, not his words given to us, then the behaviors that are born from that teaching will over time, if not immediately, begin to oppose the fruit of our rabbi. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. Pride, hostility, hatred, dissension, division, madness, violence, legalism, weightiness, lawfulness that crushes, lawlessness, self-governance, Name it, just name it. Any fruit that does not have as part of its reflection, the fruit that is the spirit will be born out of any truth that opposes scripture. Even if that truth at first sounds like the fruit, loving and kind and wonderful. And we will have a culture and a people and even within the church, a set of teachers that will constantly bend toward the tickling of the ears of those around them or the zeal for things they want to see teaching us so that we will believe what will be most helpful for them to be honored so that we will stay, we will pay, and we will help them. That's what was happening in Ephesus. The leaders were teaching what the people wanted to hear or they were teaching what the people needed to hear to have control over them, legalism, so that they would be in charge and they would be having the advantage. And Paul says here, when you are in the church, and the people are teaching, or when you're listening to the teaching out in the world and you are buying it and it opposes scripture, you are buying into demonic things and demonic things always lead to death. So how, how seriously should we take uh, right and good doctrine and truth and the understanding of scripture? Uh, Paul wrote to the church in Colossae in chapter three, and he said, make sure that the word of Christ, what is the word of Christ? what he taught and who taught what he had not yet taught when he left the Holy Spirit. So how much of this is the word of Christ? All of it. And by the way, in case you think I'm saying the Holy Spirit wrote the new Testament, the father, the old Testament and the son, the gospels. I'm not the Holy Spirit wrote. How much of this? And the voice of Jesus, our teacher is how much of this? And this is the truth of the father. How much of it? Oh, when we met the Holy Spirit and he's like, I'm going to, I'm going to teach you the stuff Jesus, Jesus hasn't yet. He also introduced himself this way. By the way, I wrote the whole thing already. So when we are here coming here and we enter in and we buy into the truths of that, which is around us and they oppose scripture, they are demonic. We need to take that seriously because when we don't, and we believe things that are not of God, even if they feel good and right and kind and wonderful, 
Eventually, they will lead us to be a people that look like the culture. And when we look like the culture, we will not look like the kingdom. And when we don't look like the kingdom, we are not ambassadors of Christ. And when we're not ambassadors of Christ, we are ambassadors of a truth that isn't even truth. It is deceitful. This is urgent. This is urgent. He even actually says it here in the scripture. I don't know why I closed the Bible because we're not done. Listen to this. Um, 1 Timothy chapter four. Look what he says next. After all of this, he says, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Okay, so where does this harken back to, by the way? Where does this harken back to? First Timothy chapter one, verse five. Do you remember what he said when he said the aim of our charge is love? Remember what else he said in that verse? The aim, you can go read it yourself. The aim of our charge is love from a pure heart and a good conscience. What he said in the beginning of Timothy is when our conscience is fixed on Jesus and his glorification and his loving his people through us, then our hearts are about who? Jesus, which means our actions, our truths will be love. When our conscience becomes more about ourselves, our rights, our desires, our preferences, our security, our safety, our future, our stability, then we will quickly out of a seared conscience begin to divert of doing things not out of a pure heart for Jesus, but out of a selfish heart, which will lead to buying into or teaching things that are not true when they are advantageous to us. And he says, these folks, their conscience has been seared. We often think of a seared conscience as that reflection of immorality. But what is he saying here? A seared conscience doesn't only lead to immorality. It actually leads to much more subtle things, the believing and teaching of truths that aren't true so that people will like you. And he says, these folks are teaching and look what's happened because they're teaching. These folks with a seared conscience who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to receive with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. He goes into marriage and foods. Folks, listen to me. The point here isn't marriage and foods. The reason Paul brings up marriage and foods, it's kind of cool, is so that when the church in Ephesus reads this and Paul is speaking of false teachers who have been deceived and are buying into demonic spirits and the teachers in Ephesus can say, man, those, those are terrible people. He took two issues, I love this, that were going on in the church that they were teaching. And he says, like, for example, these two. So what did he just do? He just connected 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 through, I think, 4 or whatever, directly to the teachers in Ephesus. If he were writing to Mosaic and he were writing to somebody that was supposed to come here and confront me uh, or us, uh, he would not use, you know, like forbidding marriage and uh, the foods you're not supposed to eat. He would write some other issues that maybe we're teaching that would be false. Again, I'm not saying we're teaching false issues in case you tweet that. Renault said they were teaching falsely. I'm saying if we were, hopefully we're not, and someone were coming, Paul would use issues that were commonly being taught here so that the connection to the false teachers here would be made immediately. I do love, is it not beautiful though, that Paul here in dealing with some actions taking place there, the fruit of false teaching, behaviors that are not of God, he says, listen, when you forbid marriage, that is not of God. For God made marriage and marriage is good. But isn't it beautiful that when he wrote to the church in Corinth, they were obsessed with marriage, kind of like our culture. You live your life to seek the person who will complete you. You wait for your soulmate, you beg God. God, give me someone to love and to be loved by because it is the need of every human soul to be loved and to love. And those not yet married, we pray for you. Must be so sad to be you and not be fulfilled by the wonder of marriage. And then we get married and we're like, God, I should have enjoyed being single. This is crazy. I had freedom. I did not understand. I could go wherever you wanted me to go. Now I'm bound to the responsibilities of another. I almost said a bad word. Terrible human. We are an insane people. 
because we take things and we elevate them to where they do not belong or we take things and we forbid them when they are not to be forbidden. And it's the same stupid thing. Uh, Marriage is everything. Don't dare get married. (laughs) And Paul's like, stop it. Stop it. Jesus is always everything and always enough. And all these other things are good gifts from him. So enjoy them, but never make them more than they ought to be. Because the second they are anything close to anything that will meet you, you will put a weight on whatever that thing is that it cannot bear for it is not a God. Your spouse is not a God. Your friends are not gods. Your workplace is not a God. Your bank account is not a God. Your stability is not a God. And if you put your well-being weighted onto those things, you will crush them and then you will die when they are crushed. Sorry, I'm getting off the table a little bit. Not the point. Paul's point is, man, listen, things from God are good things. God made things and the things he made are good. So enjoy them. Now, what I love about what Paul's doing, like he always does, is right when he puts something like that on the table, we're like, yay, sugar is good. I mean, God made sugar, didn't he? And is sugar sugar good? Come on, speak it out. Who doesn't love some sugar? Right, I'm just saying, whoo, a lot of sugar, very bad. Very bad for this thing called the human body. Well, you know, there's these plants that grow and then you do stuff with them and then you can smoke them. God made plants. You get what I'm saying? Like you could easily take a verse like this and go, everything God made is good. Thank you, Jesus. I'm going to go do some stuff. But what he says next is awesome because he says this. It brings it back to the point. The point isn't marriage. The point isn't foods. The point isn't what is good and bad and God made everything. The point is actually this. Verse five, four, it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So there are two things in that statement. Certainly in this context, the statement means when there is something like food that you are forbidden because it was sacrificed to other gods or it's unclean because it used whatever. When you bring the truth of God to anything that is unclean, anything, and you bring God to it by prayer, he makes unclean things what? Clean. But also Paul is saying here, How do we know how to steward the things God gives us in a manner worthy of the gospel, worthy of Jesus, worthy of the spirit by the way he would want? Because everything in life, when we do it too much, think too much of it, it is deadly. And anything in life, when we forbid it, it is legalism and crushing. But things should be forbidden at times and things can be enjoyed a lot of times, right? How do we know when? How do we know what? How do we know any of it? Because in this extraordinary living, breathing thing called the scripture, do you know how much he informs us about how to do life? A ton. He gives us almost everything we need to know. In fact, no, I take it back. He gives us everything we need to know in some form or another. He tells us how to steward our bodies. That gives us discernment then on what we can use in excess or not or what to do. Is it good? Is it all of that? So he says, listen, at the end of the day, watch this. When you trust the spirit of God and his truth, and it is deeply embedded in you, dwelling richly in you, and you bring it to bear on every other truth you learn, it will show you what is good, and it will show you what is not. And you will live by the fruit of the Spirit, born out of the truth of the Spirit by His power. But if you pay attention to a bunch of truths, and you do not bring them constantly back to his truth to see if they are in any way opposed or produce fruit in any way opposed to his fruit, then you will buy into things that will lead to a life that births the fruit of demons and you will believe truths that are demonic. Mm, So good, Bruno. So good. I'm in. Buckle up. Because what I'm about to say is hard. Sorry, it's hard for me this week to think about it. I hope it's hard for you because these scriptures don't just come to cause us to feel like, yes, preach it, brother. They come to charge us because 
God loves us. We here in this room have many rabbis. We ought to have one, but we have many. And we spend far more of our time, far more of our mental energy, far more of our emotional energy, far more of our zeal and passion, giving ourselves over to the learning from bloggers and TikTok stars. And just as you older folks are going, that's right, these young people, Fox News and Daily Wire, CNN and whatever else comes down that pike. We embed ourselves in the constant pouring of those things into our minds. We spend hours a day paying attention to the articles and blogs and newscasters and stations and everything else. And we give ourselves to the word of God in a five minute devotional three times a week. We are insane if we think that we're gonna do that and somehow we're gonna measure everything by the rabbi Jesus, by his spirit. We will not. And we will believe things that will become things opposed to scripture and we will even believe them not to be opposed to scripture and say things like, wow, those commentators, those people, they speak truth. And I'm like, do they now? How much? All of it? Because how well do you even know this? You see, we, we all hear, we're like, oh yeah, this needs to dwell richly in us. Does it? How much of this have you memorized? How much of the books in here are available to your mind? Second by second, as you listen or watch or read, should we listen, watch or read? Are the things like Fox News or Daily Wire or even CNN, don't say it, no, please, CNN is evil. Even CNN, do they have truth in them? Yes, of course. But do they also have a ton of falsehood? Yes, of course, CNN specifically, right? <laughs> Can we just be honest in the room for a second and just laugh at ourselves? Such fools sometimes, aren't we? Me too. But there's only one truth that is absolute, that is always right. And if we are not a people that has this truth embedded in us and we are not daily spending large portions of our mental and emotional energy in this truth, then we will be an undiscerning people and we will begin to believe and even speak things that are seemingly true to us because we have bought into our rabbis and we don't even know because we don't know the one truth that the rabbi has taught us. So I wonder what we would become as a people if we took even half of the time we invest on our blogs and our articles and our books and our TV stations and our news stations that run 24 seven before us. And we take even half of that time and we dedicate that to the study and understanding of God's word by his spirit. I wonder what kind of fruit is waiting to be born in this place that the world will look at and say, what a people are these who are loving and joyful and kind and peaceful and faithful and good and self-controlled and are always bent on the well-being of each other and of us because they love their rabbi and they know his way and his truth. We can sit in this room all day long and amen what we know to be true here. But the question is, will we dare to believe that enough to divert our energy from the rabbis we listen to and pour that energy into the rabbi who holds truth so that when we listen to the others, which we can, they are filtered by that which dwells richly in us, the word of Christ and our rabbi, Holy Spirit. We have work to do, folks, and it needs to start with us ending the constant availability to rabbis that are not our rabbi. Sorry about that. But I love you. 
And I don't want us to wake up someday and find out that the word of our rabbi was not deeply and richly embedded and the word of many others was more false than we thought. And we bought in, we behaved in a way that bore fruit that was death instead of life. My heart would break for me or for you if that became true. And that will not be true of us because we are not gonna let that happen. Thank you, God, for First Timothy. Thank you, God, for the charge that's aim is love out of a pure heart and a good conscience from Paul to Timothy, Timothy to Ephesus, Ephesus to us. God, with a good conscience and a pure heart, charges us into life and freedom. Let's pray. God, may your word that is breathed onto by you like dust that you breathed on and became us, this word breathed on to become life. God, we confess to you, I confess to you, how much of our energy, how much of my energy and time are expelled on entertainment and expelled on the constant feeding of information through the scrolling on phones and the watching of commentators and the fighting of truth and how little of our hearts are bent toward this living, breathing word. Help us to become a people that embed it in our hearts through memorization, that study it with diligence for minutes, hours, even days of the week, who abandon the other rabbis for this one. Spirit of God, you, you speaking to us through your word and revealing to us by your power great and unsearchable things we cannot know without you that are in this hidden, living, breathing, wondrous, sacred word. Spirit of God, stir up in us a new zeal to be a people that know your word better than anything else so that everything else bows to it. And then we are free, God, to learn any truths because we will discern well which of them oppose your scriptures and which of them don't. Forgive us for bending our ear towards so many rabbis at the cost of bending it toward you. Change that in us by your grace, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.